We're going to have a sweet time of fellowship coming up here in uh, just about an hour or so from now. I uh, hope that you'll be able to stick around with us. If you came in a little bit later, Stuart mentioned it in announcements, and I just want to encourage you again, uh, if it's your first time with us, uh, or if you hadn't even been thinking about the picnic, we really would love for you to stick around for a little while and enjoy some of the food and fellowship that uh, will take place in just a little bit outside. We are going to be in the book of Galatians today. I'm actually going to have you turn to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 13 to start with, but the book of Galatians is a rescue mission that is based on a rescue mission. I'll explain that as we walk through this introduction this morning. Galatians was a letter written to a group of people who were about to shipwreck their faith, who were about to take what they had been taught and what they had at least professed and run it up on the rocks. They, uh, they had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had been clearly preached to them. They appeared to have embraced it as the true gospel and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And then this, this deceptive teaching moves in that begins to influence them and begins to draw them away from the gospel. They were being told that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation, that what they had been told about trusting in him was, was sort of a starting point but not sufficient, and that in order to have true spiritual freedom— and to be made right with God, they could believe in Jesus, but they would also have to, have to carry out works. They would essentially have to convert to Judaism or, or do the works that would, would show that they were being sort of obedient, kind of conforming to the Old Testament law and its requirements. So they were being taught that salvation is this plus that. And it's faith in Christ, but you can't rely on that entirely. The finished work of Christ, his death, and his resurrection were not enough to save, but rather you needed to add something to that. And so that's why this letter of Galatians is a rescue mission. It is Paul desperately concerned for the souls of the people that he has ministered to, and he is now writing them to rescue them. Acts chapter 13, though, is where we find the start of the churches in Galatia. This kind of will help set the scene for us. On one of his first missionary trips, Paul traveled through the southern part of the province of Galatia. So you take a look on the map, there'll be the dark green, you see Galatia. We're concentrating on the southern part of that. Paul came up from Cyrus and goes up to Antioch and then travels east to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, the cities that we're going to read about. And Acts 13 and 14 describe all of this, Paul and Barnabas traveling together. And as is Paul's custom, when he goes into a city, and the first one in Galatia he goes to is Antioch and Pisidia, and the first thing he does there is go to the local synagogue. He has the, the roots of being a scholar in Jewish law, of having that rabbinical, pharisaical background. And so he goes to the synagogue as one who is embraced with that Judaistic scholar, scholarliness, and he is given an opportunity to speak. And so he does that. And he takes the first opportunity to talk about Jesus at the synagogue in Antioch. And he talks about Jesus as being a descendant of King David, something that they all could have agreed to, the, the great King David. And Jesus is in his line, and then he describes how Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior, that he is the one who had died and had risen again. And Paul speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he had been seen alive after his resurrection. If you look at Acts 13.38... 
Paul is preaching and he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I want to suggest to you that those verses, that statement by Paul at the synagogue in Antioch is pivotal to our understanding of the book of Galatians. What he is preaching there at the heart of the gospel is this is true freedom. And that freedom is found in the one that I am now proclaiming to you, he's saying, Jesus Christ. And that it's in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. And he's contrasting that to the law and saying you cannot be set free by the law. This is just going right against what they have been being taught or what has been being emphasized about the place of the law. And he sets the two in contrast, gives the gospel. The law that came through Moses cannot set sinners free. Jesus does. Look down at verse 43 of Acts 13. It says, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Catch the themes that Paul is preaching in Galatia as he is dealing still with a largely Jewish audience at the synagogue and saying, freedom comes through Christ, not through the law. Now you must walk in Christ and continue in the grace of God. It's not works, rather it is grace. And so he is preaching this message of grace that the law cannot save you. As a matter of fact, what the law does, as we'll see this later on in Galatians, is it reveals the fact that we are sinners. The law demonstrates the fact that we cannot keep perfect obedience to God and we fall short. A week passes, that's the Sabbath. He has spoken, a week passes. The next week, Paul returns to preach. And this week it says, nearly the whole city has come out. Now, Antioch was not an enormous city, but it was large enough. Um, but not one of the major sort of trade cities, but a significant city. And you can tell that what's happened during the course of that week is there has been a lot of talk about what Paul was preaching, and there's been ongoing work by Paul, no doubt, in the city. And so that when he comes to speak, now the whole city has gathered, and the Jewish leaders are immediately filled with jealousy. They're all seeing this crowd now that is coming after Paul, and it is both Jews and Gentiles who want to hear him. And so the, the Jews, it says, begin contradicting and reviling Paul. And so Paul now speaks to them because they are rejecting what he is preaching. They've turned from curious interest a week ago to now seeing this crowd of Gentiles to where they are now turning against Paul. And so verse 46 of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's talking to the Jewish people at this point. Spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. When the opposition begins, Paul has been preaching. Now the Jews are reviling and, and going against him, challenging what Paul is saying. Paul says, 
I have brought to you the word of life. I have brought to you the truth of God's salvation. Since you are now rejecting that, I am going to fulfill the mandate that Christ has given me, which is to be an apostle to the Gentiles. I am going to proclaim this truth to the Gentiles. And you see the response. The Gentiles begin to rejoice. They are delighted that this message of the Jewish Messiah is now coming to them, is going to the ends of the earth. And so there is this great growth in the ministry. It says then that they traveled to Iconium. After that, they go further east to the next city. What happened in both cities, in Antioch and in Iconium, is pretty similar. In both, there is this preaching of the gospel. There is this Jewish reaction that is strong in terms of persecution. And there is a Gentile reception of the gospel. And so at Iconium, they move on largely because of just the opposition to the preaching that builds. And they go on to Lystra and Derbe. Acts 14.7 says they continued preaching the gospel. But then in Acts 14.19, it says that while they are going on to the next city, while they are in Lystra, that the Jews from Antioch and Iconium now come over to Lystra. They're, they've now gained a, um, an enemy crowd that is following them. The hecklers are going to come to Lystra and go after Paul there. They want to stop his message. They're not content having just rejected him. They're now going to follow him and continue to revile against him. And so he goes on then to Derby. There was an attack in Lystra that nearly took Paul's life. They tried to have him stoned to death. God delivers him from that. He goes on to Derby and he preaches there. If you look down at the, the, near the end of Acts 14, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, to Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's interesting to watch what Paul has done here. So they've come from the West in Antioch, and they've preached the gospel, starting in the synagogues. It's spread to the Gentiles. They've gone all the way to the eastern point of southern Galatia, proclaimed the gospel there. People have come to faith, and they now work their way back and go back to all of these groups that have begun churches, now largely Gentile populations, and they go back and they begin to firm up the churches. They begin to teach about maturing and growth and, and build up the churches. And so in these four cities in southern Galatia, over this span of time, God has planted churches. They are, appears to be largely Gentile in their makeup, and the opposition to them is largely Jewish. And so when he speaks of dealing with tribulation on their way to the, the kingdom of God, on your way to heaven, he knows that you are going to suffer. This is not going to be easy. They've already seen it where, where Paul's life has nearly been taken. And he is warning them, but he is appointing elders and he is trying to prepare them for what is ahead. Now turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. That background from Acts is really helpful and really crucial to our understanding of the book of Galatians. You have in southern Galatia a lot of Gentiles who are new to faith in Christ. This was their first preaching of the gospel, their first understanding of Jesus Christ and the, the fact that a Messiah had come to save people. And so they are new to the faith. They are just starting in life as the local church now. And, and, and beginning to understand the truths of these doctrines. And conversely, you have this rabid religious Jewish population that is trying to attack 
the growth of Christianity, much as we'll see later Paul used to do before he was saved. And, and, and so the, the focal point that I would remind you of again is that, that statement in Antioch in Acts 13, 38, when Paul is preaching to them, and he says, through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That, that is the decisive point. That is the point that not only preaches the gospel of grace and freedom in Christ Jesus, but it also is saying to these Jewish religious leaders that what you have been doing with the Mosaic law has just been binding people. It has been wrapping people up and enslaving them in bondage something that they cannot do. The Jewish rabbis had made the law that God gave through Moses the focal point of religious life. If you want to please God, then obey the law. And they took that law, and we know that they interpreted it and twisted it and used it as a rule of judgment and added to it and, and essentially judged people by it and, and created this bondage, this religious bondage that said, I can never do everything that the rabbis are telling me to do. I can never keep the law the way that they are teaching. And, and it held people enslaved. Countless religions have done exactly the same thing. Even religions that would masquerade as forms of Christianity do this. Do this. Give money here. Make a pilgrimage here. Recite this. Go through these motions. Pray these prayers. Do all this stuff. And maybe, maybe you'll be right with God. If you just do all these things and jump through these hoops, maybe somehow you can be approved. That is, that is man-made religion catering to our, our sinful desire to want to earn approval. That's the way we are as sinners is we want, to, we want to earn something. We want to get approval, but we want it to be for something that we've earned in some way. And the reality is the gospel is a gospel of grace. One of the most offensive elements to people when they are first confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the fact that all have sinned. Romans 3 says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is nobody who keeps the law of God perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty, and so we cannot possibly make ourselves worthy before God. We cannot do enough, give enough, recite enough, pray enough to get ourselves free from the curse of sin. And remember, that's his point back in Acts 13. You're desperately desiring freedom, and you're not going to get it through adherence to the law because you're never going to do it perfectly. That's why the gospel that he preaches is so radical. God's law will not set you free. You're already guilty, and, and despite your best efforts to try to keep it, you still fail. You still fail miserably and you fall short. And so the law, what it ultimately does is it demonstrates your guilt. It shows you how desperate your plight is and how much you need someone to save you because you can't save yourself. The law is not the pathway to freedom. Every time we try to keep it, we inevitably fail and we sin again because we are sinners by nature. The pathway to freedom is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why this book of Galatians is so important. Let's just look at the first five verses this morning. Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this week and next will be our introduction to Galatians. We'll walk through the first 10 verses between this week and next. Um, this week, verses 1 through 5. And I, and, and I want in this introduction, we're going to kind of see three of the, the, the key components to this gospel, the apostle that we'll look at this morning and the gospel that he addresses. And then next week when we look at verses 6 through 10, the, the hostiles, the opponents, if you will, who are creating what's going on in Galatia at this point. But today we start with the apostle and then the gospel. Verses 1 and 2, standard sort of ancient letter format. The writer identifies self first from me to you. And that's what Paul does. He identifies himself and he says to the churches at Galatia. All of Paul's letters start with some form of self-identification. Sometimes it's as simple as Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas and Timothy. Sometimes it's Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's Paul, an apostle. This one is as strong and pointed as an identification as Paul will give. This is one of his clearest, most, I want you to get this and there not be any question about what I'm saying here sort of introductions. When he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, I'm not this, but I am through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul is taking nothing for granted. Despite the fact that he has been with these people, they know him, they have been face to face, he preached the gospel to them. As far as we can tell, it is the first preaching of the gospel. He has helped to establish their churches. He has been pivotal to their spiritual growth at this point, and so surely they know him. And yet it is, from looking at verse 1, it's almost as if Paul sees the need to reintroduce himself at this point. Before he even begins, it's to establish the fact that this is who I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, not of men. What clearly is going on is the opponents to the gospel are not only attacking the message, they're attacking the messenger. And they are saying, yeah, we, we shouldn't have let that guy in. We know who this guy, he's terrible. He's another deceptive teacher. You shouldn't listen to him. And so Paul is very plain about his identification and he begins with one of the most direct statements of his apostolic authority. He will Give us some autobiographical information later on in Galatians. More of his testimony will build as we walk through Galatians. But the issue he starts with is his position of apostle. Now, what is an apostle? The word simply literally means a sent one, one who is sent out. And it, it has the picture of one who is both sent by an authority, but who then speaks for that authority. So he's not just sent, but he's bearing that authority. We would probably equate it, the closest would be to an ambassador who is not only sent by the president to another country, but when he speaks officially, he is speaking on behalf of the president. He is speaking with the authority of the government when, when he speaks. And so that's what the, the term means. Apostles in the New Testament seem to be a pretty select group of men. Ephesians 2.20 speaks of the, the body of Christ, the household of God, being built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. The starting point for the church is the revelation of God's truth, and that comes to us through the apostles and the prophets. They are foundational to the beginnings of the church. Matthew is the first one to use the term apostles to designate particular individuals. And he does this in Matthew chapter 10 when he uses it to identify the 12 disciples that Jesus specifically called to go with him and to be sent in ministry by him. 
In fact, there's a distinction made in, in the Gospel of Luke between disciples and apostles. All apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. And so in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, it, it says there, Luke records, and when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And so there is this gathering of disciples, those who follow Jesus, who, who seem to be adherents to his teaching, who listen to him, and out of them, he selects 12 who will now go as apostles, who will be sent out with his authority in terms of ministry. And so after the resurrection, we move forward to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke 1, 2 speaks of the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says there were 11 apostles at that point in time. Judas, we know, one of the original 12 appointed by Christ, betrays Jesus, and he is dead now at the beginning of Acts. And so there is the selection of a, another person, another man, to be one of these apostles. And from the description in Acts 1 of that choosing, it's evident as Peter speaks that we must select someone the guidelines he gives is it must be someone who was with Jesus from the beginning, who traveled with Jesus, who went with Jesus, and was there and saw Jesus risen. And so it is an eyewitness testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ all the way through the resurrection. And so they choose Matthias then to replace Judas. Paul's apostleship is obviously unique. Paul was not there traveling with Jesus. Paul was, in fact, an opponent of Jesus. He became one of those who persecuted the early church. And so he, uh, he does not fit that sort of criteria. Paul was a, a strict Jewish rabbi by the name of Saul who oversaw persecution of the early believers. And we'll see this testimony again as we go on through chapter 1. So Paul understood that his commission to the apostleship was unique. And, and, and so he's, he's going to be clear about that for us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is listing people who had seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, he says, Then Jesus appeared to James. This is likely the brother, the earthly brother of Jesus who wrote James. Then Jesus appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's commission was unique. It was that moment when he was on the road to Damascus, en route to go and oversee the persecution of more Christians, that the risen Savior shows himself to Saul from heaven on that road to Damascus. Saul is blinded, but in that moment, he has seen the glory of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who now says, why are you persecuting me? And it is in that moment that Saul is born again, that he comes to faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He's now called Paul henceforth, and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is sent forth as this eyewitness with this unique ministry, in particular, to Gentiles. The point of Galatians 1.1 is that Paul's commission as an apostle was not man-made. It was not by some committee. It was not by some church that sent him. Paul says, I am an apostle because Jesus Christ appointed me an apostle. And so the authority I speak with is the authority of Jesus Christ. We would perhaps make a distinction in that when we talk about, in, in modern vernacular, the ordination of someone. An ordination 
is, is something that is done by a committee. It is a group of other ordained pastors, elders, who do that sort of interview, that inquiry, and they determine that this person is fit for, this man is fit for gospel ministry, and he is given ordination. That is different than this apostolic commission. Paul was appointed by Jesus Christ, divinely appointed with unique authorities. The apostles then are this select group of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Jesus Christ and who now speak with unique authority. They are able to speak forth God's truth at a time when people don't yet have the New Testament, when they are just now learning about Jesus Christ and understanding these truths, the apostles are the ones who are able to speak that to them. The New Testament does not offer any pattern of apostolic succession, as in the apostles making new apostles and there be sort of this ongoing office of apostle. The teaching, again, going back to Ephesians 2.20 says... They are a foundational part of the early church. What the apostles do is what we saw Paul do in the churches of Galatia. They go and appoint elders. They appoint shepherds who take the word of God as it's preached and proclaimed and now proclaim it to others. They're not revealing new truth. So we are at a place now where there are not carrying on of this specific office of apostle. I, I understand that there are churches that continue to have that practice. There seems to be no New Testament pattern for that. The New Testament speaks of this as being a very narrow group with a very specific purpose at a particular place and time in the first century. Paul's whole point, though, in asserting this is not because he's insecure, not because he, he doesn't like being questioned about his authority. His whole point is to guard the message. Because if he is not an apostle, then he is just another pretender preacher who has come through and offered up some other message. And Paul is saying, no, what I spoke to you comes from the commissioning of Jesus Christ, who has made me an apostle. And so I am speaking to you as his ambassador. The gospel he preached was God's gospel. So just as Paul's commissioned to be an apostle by Jesus Christ, so the gospel he preaches does not originate with men either. This isn't a man-made appointment. It isn't a man-made gospel. And he'll stress this later on in Galatians, down in chapter 1, that this is not man's gospel. He says, I am speaking to you as one who has been sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And so when we read Galatians, we are seeing the writing of the Apostle Paul, and we are seeing, essentially, this is, this is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This is God's declaration. And so the book of Galatians is God's word as delivered by God's Spirit through his servant, through the Apostle Paul to us. And what it's stressing to us is the gospel, then, is unalterable. Man does not design it. Man has no right to revise it in any way, to try to preach something different. We take the gospel as it has been proclaimed by Jesus Christ and then through the apostles. The gospel now is the focal point of the rest of this introduction. We tend to sometimes read introductions quickly. It's from this guy to this group. Grace and peace to you. Amen. On we go. Let's read the rest of the book. He, in these first five verses, is teaching them. Every, every piece of these first five verses is very much fitting the context and the storyline of his theme to the church at Galatia. He's going to give five crucial elements of the gospel just in this introduction that he will touch on, most of which he will build on later, but five crucial points to the gospel. First, it was planned by God. It is, secondly, proven by the resurrection of Jesus. It is all of grace. It results in peace, and it requires 
the death of Jesus Christ, the giving of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's all right there, all these key elements of the gospel. Paul is not merely doing some perfunctory greeting. This is me, Paul, to the church at Galatia, greetings, and then get to the heart of it. Paul, in his very greeting, is trying to grab every moment here to teach and correct and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. So let's walk through these. The first one actually is down in verse 4. I'm just taking it because chronologically, in terms of the the history of salvation, this one comes first. At the end of verse 4, well, he says, who gave himself, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Gospels planned by God. Sacrifice of Jesus Christ was according to the plan of God. It was not an afterthought. It was not a created this man and and they surprised me by what they've done and now I have to try to think of plan B. This is according to the will of our God and Father. Ephesians 1 is probably the best elaboration on this and when it describes how he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created the universe, God has established a plan whereby he would create human beings and he would redeem human beings. He would redeem a fallen race by the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 goes on to say, he predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. Later it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The gospel is not an afterthought. Paul's emphasizing it here, saying this is, this is not some, it sounds radical, the gospel sounds radical because of what you're thinking about the law, but this is not some wild new teaching. This was planned by God from eternity Past. So that's the first point. Second point is the gospel is proven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 1, besides emphasizing apostolic authority, says, I'm an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is not unrelated to the issue of apostolic authority. This point about God raising Jesus from the dead ties in with what he has just said about being an apostle in this sense. His point is, I was commissioned by a living Savior. I have seen this Savior. He is risen from the dead. His rising is what indeed makes it clear that he is the the, the Savior, the Messiah. He didn't need men to appoint him. He was confronted by the living Jesus Christ. But the point that probably is most important here, and again, we tend to kind of hit these sort of quickly in introductions, when he says, God the Father who raised him from the dead. The heart of the issue in Galatia, the heart of what's at stake is what sets a sinner free? What is it that redeems a sinner, that purchases him out of slavery? What sets him free from bondage to sin? Is it, as the false teachers are saying, human effort governed by doing good works, not doing certain things, carrying out sacrifices, going through all of these motions. Is it human effort or is it through a savior who has already defeated sin and death? If the question is, how do we get freedom from bondage to sin and death? Do we do it ourselves, or do we get it as a gift from a savior who already conquered sin and death. And so Paul intentionally joins father and son at this point to make it clear that the father raised the son from the dead. What does that prove if the father raises the son from the dead, but that the sacrifice of the son was acceptable? 
that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross paid the ransom to free sinners, that it was sufficient to pay to rescue sinners. And so God, our Father, raises Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I don't overcome bondage to sin or the penalty of death by self-effort. We rely entirely on the fact that the God whom we worship, God our Father, approved of the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he verified that he approved it by then raising his son from the dead. And so the defeat of sin and death is secure. So this mention of resurrection is not just to, to throw out another doctrinal point, make sure you know about the resurrection. It's there, but he's making the very point that this gospel that he preached, the only reason this has any merit to it as God's gospel is by virtue of the fact that God raised Jesus Christ, his son, from the dead. It proves, it verifies the gospel. So it was planned by God. It requires the resurrection of Jesus. Third, it's all of grace. Verse 3 again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said this before, bears repeating, the word of God doesn't waste words. So grace and peace to you is not the equivalent of a casual sort of, how you doing? As we might, you know, just sort of throw out in conversation. How's it going? That, that's, when he says grace to you and peace, even though we see that repeated throughout the New Testament, it is rich with meaning because Paul is being intentional with the Galatians to say, grace, this is, this is of grace. He is going to hammer this throughout the book of Galatians to the point that he will end Galatians at the very end of the letter. He will say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Why have I said all that I've said? Why have I written this? So that you would rest in grace. So that you would know that the finished work of Jesus Christ is sufficient and you would walk and live and breathe and understand your salvation rests in the grace of God. In fact, if you look, and we're gonna, we'll talk more about verse 6 next week, but just look at verse 6 a second. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See what he sets in contrast? Different gospel called by God the Father in the grace of Christ. This true gospel is of grace. It is a gracious work of God. Anything different than that now nullifies grace. It now guts grace, if you will. The Galatians are about to shipwreck their faith Paul, in in some of the strongest words in Galatians, in chapter 5 and verse 4, he will say that if you seek to be made right before God by trying to keep his law, he says, you will have fallen away from grace. If you turn this into self-effort, then you you have severed yourself from the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And the Galatians are, will shipwreck their faith if they lose sight of that. One writer puts it this way, grace is God's unconditional goodwill toward mankind, decisively expressed in the saving work of Christ. If the gospel turns on my works or lack thereof, then it is no longer of God's grace. If I am am going to combine my works with God's grace, then what I am saying to God is your grace is insufficient. It's not enough. Your grace is good. Maybe it's a starting point. It gets me going, but it doesn't actually save me. It's not sufficient to save and, and if I'm going to combine works with grace, then there is the stench of human effort being piled on top of God's grace. As if, God, I have to do this. I have to contribute something. Jesus Christ paid 
the penalty for my sins. God declares me as free from the bondage to sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. And all he has called on me to do is to act in faith and believe that, to receive his grace through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That is peace. Fourth, the gospel, uh, that is grace, I should say. The gospel results in peace. That's the fourth one, sorry. He says in, in verse three again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is not nearly as rich in meaning if you do not understand where you stand in relationship to God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless you come to know and believe that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. You are hostile to God. That peace seems hard to grasp unless you know that first, unless you are convinced that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are at odds with him. We enter life opposed to him in desperate need of being reconciled, being made right with God. God is just, he is holy, he is the judge of all mankind. And so as disturbing as this may sound to someone who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no escape from the condemnation of God. It's not because of works you somehow put yourself there. Your works have simply verified your position there. We come into life in that place of condemnation in need of rescue from that. We are in a place of hostility toward God. That's why at Romans 2.3, Paul asks the rhetorical question there, do you presume that you will somehow escape the judgment of God? It's talking about God's justice. Do you, do you think that somehow you're going to get a pass on this and not be held to God's holy standard? If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, Romans 2.5 says you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And the heart of what Paul will say in Romans, as he says here in Galatians, is run to the gospel. Run to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Believe that Jesus Christ died for you, that he paid the ransom that you can never pay on your own. Trust in him. Run to the gospel. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, the hostility is over. We are at peace with God. In fact, the beauty of this verse, when he says it in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God, what's he say? Our Father. He understands that, that the Jews are, are bringing in this, this speaking of God, probably, maybe even speaking in terms of God as Heavenly Father in some respect. But here is Paul now making it personal and saying that because of what Jesus Christ has done and belief in him, you now see God as Father, as your Father. You are at peace with him. You're in relationship with him as a child is to his Father. The gospel is planned by God, proven by the resurrection. It's all of grace, results in peace. And then fifth and finally, the gospel required Jesus Christ to give himself in sacrifice, to deliver sinners. Verse, four, uh, verse three again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of Jesus, verse four, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That is a magnificent statement. 
First part of that statement is sort of the obvious part that we've just been talking about. He gave himself for our sins. That's the part that we've just been reveling in about the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death was sacrificial and substitutionary. He gave himself willingly to death to be in our place and to take the punishment and wrath that we deserve. But I want you to really key in on the middle part of verse 4. To deliver us from the present evil age. At the start of this message, I said to you, I think Galatians is a rescue mission that revolves around, that is based on a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission in the sense that Paul is, is writing out of a sense of concern for these professing believers in Galatia. He wants to rescue them from this false gospel, from this deceptive teaching. And so he is writing to, to rescue them in their current circumstances from what they are being taught. But in writing to rescue them, Paul takes them back to the rescue that is the, should be the, the chief of heartbeat for the, for the gospel. This, this is the point around which their rescue lies, and it is the work of Jesus Christ. Because what he says here in verse 4 when he says that Christ died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, that word for deliver literally means to, to pluck out of something, to lift it out of something. It, it, it's a picture of rescue. When he says to deliver here, Paul is, is giving us the picture of God in his grace reaching down into the garbage dump of sin and death and grabbing a hold of you and by his grace plucking you from out of it and saving us from that, rescuing us, delivering us from that. It's a glorious picture of, of Jesus Christ rescuing us from a bondage from which we were powerless to free ourselves. There's nothing we could do. We couldn't sort of swim and claw our way out of that dump. It took the Savior Jesus Christ to give his life as the ransom and then to rise again to rescue us from it. That's what Paul's picturing here. It's another way for him to introduce what will be the theme of the book of Galatians, which is you are enslaved to sin unless... You run to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a pathway to freedom, and it is faith in Jesus Christ. The same thing Paul first preached in Galatia when he said to them, you're enslaved, and you're trying to free yourself by doing things in God's law, and God's law was never designed to set you free. God's law was designed to help you see a holy God and you being a sinful human being is falling short and in need of a salvation that must come from him. It must come by his grace. Paul says, here is the pathway to freedom. If you think you can free yourself, you can. Your only hope is putting your trust fully in Jesus Christ. He did the work to rescue you. And the beauty, he says here, is it's not just from eternal punishment, which is a wonderful thing. We have hope for eternity that when we die, we will be able to stand before God and, and, and our Father will welcome us in the righteousness of Christ. So it's a wonderful thing when we think in terms of eternal punishment and being rescued from that. But what Jesus did also, it says, rescues you today. It says to deliver us from the present evil age. Salvation in Christ sets us free today from all of the vain efforts of the world to try to somehow find peace, 
to try to somehow find nirvana or something with the creator or something out there. It saves us from all those vain attempts. It saves us from bondage to sin. He delivers us and sets us free so that not only will we not be condemned in eternity, but we are able to walk in freedom today, in freedom from bondage to sin. Jesus Christ is the only one who can give you true freedom. And when you trust in him, Scripture describes him, him baptizing, placing within us his spirit so that we now can walk in that freedom. We now can live a life walking after our Savior Jesus Christ and bring glory to him forever and ever. Paul in Romans chapter 6 will hit on some of these similar themes of this slavery thing. And one of the things he says in Romans 6 is, you know what, what one thing is that sets a slave free? Death. When a slave dies, he's no longer a slave anymore. He's been set free. And in Romans 6, he uses that to illustrate the point of when Christ died, he defeated sin and death. But because God has put you in Christ, because you belong to him, then you have died to sin. You have been set free. That bondage to sin that, that, that is what keeps me separated from God and keeps me wallowing in my sin, is what that power is what has been broken by the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 7 says, One who has died has been set free from sin. That's what we have in Christ. That's why Paul will go on in Romans and he'll say, Count yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Think about this. You want to understand what the, the Christian life is like and what that walk is to be? It is a life that counts yourself as having been set free. You don't have to yield to temptation. You don't have to carry on in, in, in sin. You are able to now walk in freedom in Christ. And clearly, we understand that there's still that element to it, that we are in a, an evil world, just as Paul described here, this present evil age. We are surrounded by evil. We have bodies that understand sin. We are habituated toward evil. And that's why the, the call now is you have to think differently. If you're trusting in Christ, you have been set free. He has now enabled you to be free from the bondage. And so now use that freedom to glorify Christ. And that'll be one of the themes Paul will come back to in this letter about our freedom in Christ. We've been delivered from this present age through the death of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not only for eternity, but if you are trusting in him, you have new life now and are able to live differently and to enjoy the freedom that you have been given in Christ to obey him. Let's pray. Father, we see passages like this and it reminds us again of how foolish it is when those who are trusting in Jesus Christ willingly walk back toward the, the dump of sin. We willingly try to taste of it again and its fleeting pleasures. How foolish it is that we who have been graciously set free and put at peace with you would seek to find reward and satisfaction in the things of sin. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only provides a salvation that gives us hope for life after death, but provides a rescue from this present evil age. We now are able to be in the world and yet not be of it, not be in bondage to it. We're able to, to think differently about you, 
and to love you and to think differently about the people around us and to love them and to show a compassion and a grace and a kindness and patience with people that is like Christ and unlike the world that is different because we have been delivered from that bondage, rescued by Jesus Christ. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's not fully trusting in Jesus Christ, who has perhaps held to that idea that I believe in Jesus, but I've also got things I feel like I've got to do in order to be kept right and to be right before him and to have God's approval. I want to pray that today you would open their eyes, that the the fruit of works, the things that we do, are in gratitude to you. Not in performance, not in trying to earn something, but our praise, our obedience as governed by your spirit, as worked out in us in the fruit of the spirit. That That is the evidence of your spirit. It is your kindness at work in us. Father, we pray that no one would leave here this morning thinking that, or left in that place of uncertainty, thinking, I'm not sure if I've quite yet earned a place where I could stand before God. Would today be the day that your spirit would bring them to life to see that Jesus Christ paid the price for sin on the cross, rose again, defeating sin and death. And his life, death, and resurrection are to be trusted to. That is what we are called to believe in, to turn from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you for the new week before us. Help us to walk as a free people who love the gospel, who love to serve, who seek to glorify you because you enable us to do that through your kind work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.